If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. To the book of Psalms, it's in the very middle of the Bible. We want to look at Psalm 32. Last week, we concluded a series in the book of Ephesians. This week, we start a new series for the summer, a series in the Psalms. Don't worry, it is not my plan to preach expositionally through the entire uh, book of Psalms, entire collection of Psalms, but rather uh, we will drop in on particular Psalms to open up in the weeks ahead over the course of the summer. And uh, the focus of these sermons uh, in the Psalms will be on the believer's experience, uh, the believer's experience of God and sin and grace and providence and hope and joy and trial and suffering and praise. I hope to bring these psalms to our attention uh, such that we will be enriched and helped in our experience in the Christian life. And so today I've turned your attention to Psalm 32. Let's read the first seven verses together of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Psalm 32 is a psalm of David, king of Israel. The context of Psalm 32 is the same context as that of Psalm 51, which is perhaps, if you've been in the way for some time, is a more familiar psalm to you. Both Psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, have as their background what was perhaps the ugliest episode in the life of King David. David had committed adultery, and he had committed murder. And in the months that followed those two great sins, he sought to hide from God and to evade confessing his sin and acknowledging his sin to the Lord. Well, Psalm 51 in particular is about the confession of that sin. Psalm 32 is about the aftermath of that confession, that repentance on David's part. Psalm 32 speaks of the blessed man. It's actually the second psalm that we have that speaks of the blessed man. I wonder if you know where the first one is. It's actually the first psalm that talks about the blessed man. And Psalm 1 talks about the blessing of walking in accordance with God's commands, walking in obedience to God's law and communion and fellowship with him. I'll just read the first few verses of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Well, this is the blessed man of Psalm 1. It is that man who walks in obedience to God's law. And Psalm 1 is meant to be the blueprint of blessing for each and every believer. We ought always to live 
in the light of Psalm 1 as those who believe the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to honor God. But see, Psalm 32, the second psalm we have that speaks of the blessed man, speaks about a different kind of blessing and indeed has a different context entirely. Psalm 32 comes to us in the context of sin and failure. Psalm 32 shares that context with Psalm 51, David's adultery and his murder and his lying and his hiding from God. Let me read just a few verses from Psalm 51 so you could have in your mind what David's experience of repentance was like. He says, Psalm 51, verses 3 through 5, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth on iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the background of Psalm 32, the psalm I've turned you to this morning. Intense awareness of sin and failure. But still this psalm is about blessing. It's about the blessed man. In Psalm 1, the blessed man is the man who walks in obedience to God's law. In Psalm 32, we see that the blessed man is the forgiven man. The blessed man is the man who, despite his sins and his disregard for God's law, has experienced full and free forgiveness from God. Psalm 32 is about the dynamics of sin overwhelming a man and of him being brought to repentance. It's about grace being greater than all of his sins. Psalm 1 is a wonderful and precious psalm, and we should do everything we can do to live in its light. But when we have failed, Psalm 32 describes of another kind of blessing, and it is the blessing of forgiveness. On the opening up of this psalm, we'll follow the following outline. The text breaks down quite simply into four parts, at least through verse 7. First, we'll consider the blessing of forgiveness. That's verses 1 through 2. Secondly, the misery of impenitence, verses 3 through 4. The simplicity of confession and pardon, verse 5. And then fourthly and finally, the ready access to God who forgives. The blessing of forgiveness, the misery of impenitence, the simplicity of confession and pardon, and fourthly and finally, the ready access to God who forgives. Uh, two more sort of preface-type comments before we dive into that outline. Uh, as a preacher, you read so much, you listen to different sermons, uh, you become aware over time that you never really have an original thought, uh, but you can't always trace where you got different ideas. And I'm aware that I say almost nothing original from this pulpit. Uh, that said, in this sermon, I am particularly aware of the help I have received from a man named Robert Fisher, who's a personal mentor to me, and his thoughts are even reflected in this sermon. The second sort of preface remark I want to make uh, is with respect to those here today who will be baptized this afternoon. I thought about preaching a sermon on baptism, decided against that, went to Psalm 32 instead. There's a reason I did that. I had you actually chiefly in my mind. And that's because this sermon and this text in Psalm 32 is about some of the most fundamental dynamics of Christian experience. This sermon teaches us about the routine of repentance and forgiveness and of going to God and of finding Him and of experiencing fresh forgiveness and fresh faith in His presence. This is about some of the most basic principles of preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is Christianity 101 type stuff. And my prayer has been that God would help in the preaching of this sermon to impress these truths on your hearts, especially as you're baptized later on today. All right, consider with me firstly the blessing 
of forgiveness. Please look again at verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, it's easy when reading the Psalms to assume this is obviously a different type literature than other portions in the Scripture. The Psalms are more poetic. They're often prayers to God. And it's easy to think in certain contexts that, well, David or the psalmist is just kind of heaping up phrases that are synonymous or poetic, and we're not to really meticulously look at the words in the same way we would say in an epistle of Paul or John or something like that. However, I don't think in this text David is just heaping up sort of repetitive phrases to get at the same idea. There's similarities between these phrases, and yet I think we're especially helped by looking carefully at the words that David chooses to use in verses 1 and 2. So in verse 1, first of all, David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is forgiven. What is transgression? Well, transgression is deliberately choosing to violate God's law. Don't have in your minds here like a mistake. David didn't make a mistake. He saw the standard. He knew what God required. He knew what was right. David didn't need to be educated or informed on the Ten Commandments. He's the king of Israel. He would have known that it was wrong to commit adultery and to uh, steal and lust after another man's wife. He would have known that to murder another man was wrong. He would know that God hates lying and that God is a God of truth. He knew the standard. And yet in his passion, in his lust, in his sin, in his rebellion, he transgressed the law of God. This is one of the great forms of sin in our day. I believe it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In answer to the question, what is sin? Answers, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Transgression of the law. To see the standard, to know the standard, to see the law of God, and to break the law of God nonetheless. It's conscious, willful rebellion to the standard that God has set. Well, David was not uninformed about the standard. He knew the standard, and his sin was conscious, deliberate transgression of God's law. Even though he sought to lie about that sin in the aftermath and evade responsibility, he transgressed the law of God. The second word that's used, David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin is the most common word in the Hebrew Bible for sin, the word that's used here translated sin. It essentially means to miss the mark. Failure to meet the standard. Uh, missing the mark. That's what sin is. And you can even see that in that definition uh, the Westminster Confession gave. Sin is any lack of conformity unto, or transgression of the law, to a failure to live up to the standard. A failure to hit the mark in the way that God intends us to. Which means, actually, biblically speaking, uh, it's possible to sin unintentionally. You know, it's possible even to sin with good motives. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 7, when I would do good, I find that evil is present with me. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that experience. Maybe you, 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 you've gotten up early, you've come into worship, you want to worship God, and, and you've prayed, and you've prepared, and then you get in, and we're going to spend this hour and a half in worship, and, and you find so quickly your mind drifts to other things. You didn't mean for that to happen, you didn't want for that to happen, but it happened, and you missed the mark. You failed to worship God according to his word in the way that he wants you to worship. That's sin. That's missing the mark. That's failure to meet the standard. Perhaps the most obvious example in the Bible is that great commandment. We're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
Do you ever remember a moment of doing that as we ought to? It's failure to meet the standard. It's to miss the mark. And God calls that sin. David said he sinned. His sin needed to be covered. Well, thirdly, the term that David uses is iniquity. He says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Well, this word is not just sort of synonymous with the others. It carries some different nuances, a different sense to it. Iniquity refers to perversion. It refers to depravity, something that is twisted and heinous. This sort of sin is the sort of sin that causes us to feel dirty and to feel filthy and to feel ashamed before God. Perhaps it was the kind of thing that caused Job to say, I hate myself. I abhor myself, Job said. This is heinous sin, perverse sin, and certainly David had experience with this. This sort of sin causes us to experience the sharpest feelings of shame in God's presence. Well, indeed, David's sin could be categorized as iniquity, adultery, murder. There's a heinousness and a filthiness attached to David's sin. So these are the terms David used to describe his actions, transgression, sin, and iniquity. Well, this is a psalm about blessing. The, the, the sin is not the blessing. Rather, the blessing comes with forgiveness. So notice more carefully as we look at those sections. David says, my transgression was forgiven. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. The idea is a burden being lifted, being taken away. We have a beautiful example of forgiveness in Leviticus 16. And the Day of Atonement that's recorded there. And what would happen on the Day of Atonement is that the priest, Aaron, there was a goat appointed, uh, uh, and, and Aaron would take that goat, he'd put his hands on the goat, and he would confess over the head of that goat the sins of all the people. All the people of Israel. He confessed sin while holding his hands on the head of that goat. And what was being symbolized was the transfer of burden, the transfer of sin. The sins of God's people will be put upon this animal. And maybe you know what happened after that. Once all the sins were confessed by the priest, he would send that goat, that animal, out of the camp. Leviticus 16 says, to a remote area, far away. What's the idea? The symbol. What's signified is our sins being placed upon another, the burden being transferred and lifted, and that being pushed out of the camp and, and put out of God's sight, such that he did not see their sins, but it was transferred on another. This, of course, prefigures God putting our sins upon his son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is even said in Hebrews to be placed outside the camp. Well, that's this idea of burden being transferred, or burden being lifted, or burden being placed on another. Same word is used. David says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. It's lifted. It's taken away. And then he says, secondly, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Nothing spectacular in Hebrew about that word cover. It just means to cover. Cover so as not to uh, see. Uh, the, in, in, in the Old Covenant, there was a rule about all the trash and the refuse and the human waste of the Israelite people. It was to be put outside the camp and there was to be a covering placed over it such that no one could see it. That's the idea here. David says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. There's, there's like a sheet over it and God doesn't see it. That's a blessed man who has his sin covered. Think of that thing in your past that makes you most ashamed. And think that for the Christian, that thing is covered. God is not looking on that. He's provided a covering for your sin. Thirdly, David says 
Blessed is the man whose iniquity is not counted to him. Iniquity not counted or reckoned. This is an accounting term. I think those of you who, who, who keep family budgets, you spend $100, what do you do? You record that in your budget. Or maybe you take the receipt and you staple it to your family's budget. It's an accounting term. It goes into the books. Well, apparently, uh, God has books as well, and he does not account or reckon our debts to us, our iniquities to us. He's not keeping receipts. Our, our wrong is not allowed to enter the records. It's not allowed to, to enter into the balance of right and wrong. This is really amazing to think about. When you stand in the judgment, if you're a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, seek to honor the Lord, when you stand in the judgment with this awesome prospect before you of everlasting life with the Lord Jesus or eternal punishment in hell, and then the books of your life are opened up. God does keep books. He does keep records. And here you are before the bar of Christ, and the books are going to be opened. What's he going to find there? Well, for the Christian, the promise is he will not see iniquity. Those things that make you so ashamed, perversion, depravity, that which is filthy, that which is dirty, that which is wrong, and you're conscious of it, and you feel the sharpest pangs of shame in the presence of God. God says, when you appear in judgment... Those books are opened up. Your iniquity will not be counted against you. He's not going to find it there. He's not going to see it there. That record is going to be gone. Blessed is the man whose iniquities are not recorded. Our very worst and most perverse thoughts and deeds, they're blotted out of the books. Final statement that's made is, blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, David, through this process of repentance, was actually changed. He was penitent. He was remorseful. He was repentant. This wasn't sort of just tacit, let me offer up a formulaic prayer. David himself was changed. His spirit was once full of deceit, and now that's different. I'm not going to lie to God. I'm not going to hide from God. Blessed is the man whose spirit there is no deceit, who goes to God and repents and finds forgiveness from him. Friends, it's a horrible thing to be filled with deceit. To be in a place where you feel you have to lie about your sins to yourself or to others or to God to hide your sins from your parents or from your husband or from your wife or from your pastor or from God himself. David says that blessing comes in the acknowledgement of our sin. That is the pathway to blessing. Well, now, secondly, please look with me at the misery of impenitence. We've seen the blessing of forgiveness. Now, secondly, the misery of impenitence. Verses 3 and 4. David writes, For when I kept silent, which for David presumably was many months, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. Well, first notice here that apparently David's impenitence over these months led to emotional agony. To emotional agony. He groaned. I don't think we're supposed to imagine David wandering around the palace literally audibly groaning. I think this is internal groaning. It might have been the only thing he could see in Hindsight, He might have gone about his regular responsibilities as king, but inside he was groaning. He was in emotional turmoil. He knew he had sinned against God, but day in and day out he sought to distract and to deflect, and it caused inner turmoil. Some of you know that experience. You can remember a time when you evaded repentance. You evaded acknowledging your sin before God, and you can remember in hindsight, I was broken up inside. 
There was emotional turmoil when I was impenitent, when I refused to go to God with my sin. But notice also his impenitence apparently led even to physical stress. That had an effect on his body. He says, my bones wasted away. My strength was dried up. It might be easy to dismiss this language as figurative, but some of you know what this is like. That an awareness of real guilt and a deceitful attempt to hide actually can have physical effects on a person, such that you're more stressed, you're more anxious, you're not able to sleep, and it actually has physical effects when you're seeking to evade the presence of himself. Well, then thirdly, David says even more than that, his impenitence caused God's hand to be heavy upon him. God's hand was upon David. Now, this is not meant to express sort of the encouragement that comes with the presence of God. If I say God's hand was with me, you know, that, that's meant to convey encouragement and help, but that's not the idea. That's not the way this phrase is being used in this text. David says God's hand was heavy upon me. That is that God's hand was against David. He was pressing David. He was bringing David low. He was backing David into a corner. This was God trying to bring David to a place of penitence and humiliation in the face of his sins. Now having said that, as terrible and as agonizing as that must have been to have God's hand against you and upon you, pressing you and bringing you to penitence, even this was an expression of God's grace to David. He didn't leave David. He stayed with David. He continued to influence David. He sought to convict David of his sin. Doesn't God say those whom he loves, he chastises, he disciplines? Even this was an expression of God's grace. He didn't say, well, you sinned, I'm gone, I'm out of here. No, he pressed David. You need to come low and to see your sins and stop evading and stop lying so that you might be able to come back to me and experience forgiveness. This was an expression of God's grace. Well, please notice thirdly now with me in verse 5, the simplicity of confession and pardon. The simplicity of confession and pardon. Look with me, if you will, at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's sort of striking, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure we don't get all of the information, all that went on in David's experience. It's not all here in verse 5, but he summarizes it quite simply. I acknowledge my sin to you. Confession is actually very simple. David said, I stopped hiding. I stopped deceiving. I stopped shrinking away in darkness. I came into the light and I acknowledged my sin to God. And David wants us to know that this was a self-conscious choice he made. Like eventually he, he came to himself. He had to speak to himself. He said, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to go to the Lord. I'm going to come clean. I'm going to confess my sins to the Lord. I'm going to stop this. And I'm going to acknowledge my sin to God. Listen, the decision was simple. The decision to repent to confess sin need not be complicated. It's actually quite simple, according to verse 5. Now, the process that led to David's repentance was certainly long and complex, but the repentance wasn't. The process that led to David's repentance took months, and there were all the accompanying expressions of pride and evasion and deceit and being broken down, but once he was broken down, repentance and confession of sin was actually quite simple. He acknowledged his sin to God. He confessed his transgression. Now, by saying it was simple, I don't mean that it was easy. 
It was simple, but it wasn't easy, of course. This meant David had to confront himself. He had to see himself for what he really was, a murderer and an adulterer and a transgressor of God's law. It meant he had to agree with God's indictment against him. And that wasn't easy. But once David came to himself and he saw himself as a sinner, confession and repentance was simple and immediate. He could go to God. And God's response was equally simple. He forgives him. It's it's almost comical how simple this is. I repented. I confessed my sin. I said, I will acknowledge my sin. And you forgave my iniquity. So simple. So plain. The consequences of David's sin were worked out over hard years. But the forgiveness was immediate. It was freely granted. David could not evade the consequences. There were certainly consequences to his sin. Maybe you know what it's like to sin and to live through the consequences of sin. But the forgiveness was simple and immediate and freely granted. Well, Some of our sins may be of such a nature that it takes many hard years for the consequences to be worked out. But despite the nature of our sin, pardon from God is immediate and it is full and it is gracious. Scriptures say if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all iniquity, from all perversion, those things that make us dirty and filthy before God. He's faithful and just to forgive us if we confess our sins to Him. Now someone here perhaps looking at this text saying how simple after all the things David had done, crimes he had committed, he had murdered a man, he had committed adultery, he had lied. Can't be this easy. He'd just be forgiven like that and just get off scot-free? Something must have been done. There must be some great work. There must be some price that has to be paid. And you're exactly right. Because someone did do the work. Someone did pay the price. This is how grace and forgiveness is possible. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to go to the cross and suffer the wrath of God. And the penalty that was due towards sinners like David and like you and like me, God sent his son into the world. And this great work had to be accomplished. And a great price had to be paid. And it's because that great price has been paid that forgiveness now is simple. Forgiveness is free. Forgiveness is available to all those who come to the Lord Jesus in repentance of faith. God has made a way such that if we come to him in humble, sincere, open-faced confession, he freely receives. He freely and graciously forgives because of what Christ has done. Forgiveness is simple, and repentance is simple. Perhaps in sincerity, you've come to Christ in repentance, but you still say, I don't really feel forgiven. Well, listen, there comes a point where it doesn't really matter how you feel. That's when we have to trust God's word. His word tells us That if we go to him with our sins and confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us. David said, I I acknowledge my sin. Stopped hiding. I came clean. And the promise is that God will forgive iniquity. It really doesn't matter how you feel. It's a matter of trusting God's word. His infallible, inerrant, unshakable, unbreakable word says to those who come to him in repentance and faith, they are forgiven. Once you repent simply and honestly, we're not to doubt that God forgives us. To do so would be an affront to the Lord Jesus himself who suffered and bled in our place. 
The immediacy and the simplicity of forgiveness of sins is meant to magnify the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that it's so simple, so immediate, so free, so full is meant to magnify what Christ has done in our place. And when we doubt that God forgives us, it's an affront to the Lord Jesus himself who bled for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. Well, now please notice with me, fourthly and finally, we've considered the blessing of forgiveness, the misery of impenitence, the simplicity of confession and pardon, fourthly and finally, the ready access to God who forgives. The ready access to God who forgives. Look with me at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Well, David goes on in this psalm to enumerate lessons he has learned about repentance and forgiveness through this experience. I just want to focus on this one. Believers, the godly, have ready access to the God who forgives. David says, therefore, that is based on what I believe and what I have experienced in my own sin. I'm saying this, therefore, everyone who's godly should go to God expecting ready access and free forgiveness. There's a few things to notice here in the language. First of all, David is chiefly concerned with the godly. He's not primarily thinking about those outside of Christ, those who are unbelievers. He's talking about godly people. Godly people who, like him, have failed. Godly people who, like him, have sinned, maybe not to the same degree, but they find themselves in the same predicament as David. David says, please, don't do what I did. Don't hide from God. I discovered that that God is ready to forgive. If I would just come clean and acknowledge my sin to him, he will forgive my iniquity. And David is looking now on the people of Israel and he's saying, go to God. Go to God. Don't be like me. I was stubborn. I evaded. I hid from God. But see, we have ready access to God and you can go to him anytime. He has a concern for the godly who, like David, have fallen into sin. He's not talking primarily about non-believers. He's talking to believers who have fallen and feel like they can't find their way back. He's talking to people like himself who at one point lived in Psalm 1 but they drifted away from it. And David said, Psalm 32 is your pathway back to God. Listen, friends, you can start over. You really can restart in the Christian life. Maybe you look back on this last year and you say, you know, as a follower of Christ, I have not been the sort of Psalm 1 Christian I ought to be. I've not delighted in God's law in the way that I should. I'm aware of so many sins, so much failure. I've not been the disciple I ought to have been. I've not honored God the way that I ought to. This is your pathway back. You can restart. You can go to God and confess your sins. And he will forgive your iniquity. And he will restore you. And he will draw you into full communion and fellowship with him afresh. You can always restart, friends. Go back to God. And Psalm 32 is your pathway back to him. Your pathway back to blessing. But notice also, David seems to assume ready access to God. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David has acknowledged his sin to God. He has confessed openly, and he has had his transgression forgiven, his sin covered, his iniquity no longer counted against him. He has experienced forgiveness from God, blessing from God through fresh pardon. And now he turns to his fellow believers and says, all of you can expect this sort of access to God. All of you can expect this sort of treatment from God. The way is made wide for you to come to him in repentance and faith and to believe afresh upon him. He calls you into the light and there he promises you forgiveness. 
God is always ready to receive sinners who come to him. He is willing to receive his sons and daughters who have failed miserably and to restore them. He's always willing to restore his people and to bring them back into fresh communion with himself. And so David says, you have access. Come to God. Don't be like I was. Don't hide. Come into the light. Acknowledge your sin to God and let forgiveness from God break forth in your heart like a rush of waters. Come to him. Come into the light. Go to God. Go to God. The lanes are clear. There is ready access to him. Go to God. And the third thing we should notice from verse 6 is that David commends promptness and even a sense of urgency in our repentance. For he says, verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David does not exactly develop this idea of the, the time when you may be found. I don't think he's arguing well, there's, there's a short period, and if you miss that period or you miss your appointment with God, he can't be found. I don't think that's exactly the idea. But nonetheless, David wants to draw our attention to the fact that God can be found today. He can be found now. Go to him at a time when he can be found. Confess your sin to him. There's an immediacy to this. There's a promptness to this, urgency to this. Do not delay. Are you aware of your sin? Are you aware of your failure? Well, go to God now. He can be found. And you could have full and free forgiveness in his presence. Don't delay. Run to him and enjoy a restored fellowship with him now. Well, in conclusion, there's just two things I wish to say as we wrap up this morning. I want to say something specifically to you who are being baptized today. So this has application for every Christian person here. I want to speak to Lisa. I want to speak to Kathy, to Alexis, to Marcus, and to Matthew. Some of you are just beginning your walk with Christ. We're going to hear about that later on in your testimonies. And your baptism today will represent a new beginning in many ways. Others of you have been walking with Christ for a little while now, but nonetheless, your baptism today represents sort of a next step in your walk with Christ. Well, regardless of whether you've been walking with Christ for three months or three years or 30 years, I want to impress upon you the importance of this text for your soul's survival. There will be seasons in your Christian life when you will feel like you cannot go to God. You will perhaps find that you have had thoughts or committed actions that make you so ashamed that the thought of going to God with them is the furthest thing from your mind. Or there may come a day when you will be so ensnared by sin you will try to hide from God. And you'll be tempted to act like David. You won't want to acknowledge your sin. You'll think you get away with living in darkness. Listen, I urge you, make this text the ballast of your life. You can go to God and experience again and again fresh blessing, fresh forgiveness. Go to Him. Commit to this. You will go to Him at a time when He can be found. And just settle it here and now. Commit yourself to this, that you will go to God every day expressing fresh faith and fresh repentance. You can experience daily blessing and daily forgiveness from God. And we never graduate past this. Listen, repentance is not a one-time event, a one-off gig that happens at the beginning of your journey. For the Christian, for the disciple of Christ, repentance is a way of life. We go to God again and again, making known to him our sins and our failings. This psalm is not primarily for non-believers. It's for the godly. He says, he says, godly people should go to God, and they should make known their sins, and they should experience fresh forgiveness and pardon from God. They shouldn't evade fellowship and communion with him. They shouldn't hold off. They shouldn't delay. And so I encourage you, commit every day. 
I'll go to God. I'll keep short sin accounts. I'll not allow myself to drift. I'll pray for his help in my life. And I will experience each day fresh repentance, fresh forgiveness, and fresh faith. And I can tell you, certainly anyone here who's been with Christ for many years can say there will be seasons when this is hard to do. There are all sorts of things that should make us ashamed. We're conscious of wrongdoing. We're conscious of sin. We're conscious not just of missing the mark. We're conscious of transgression. I've done wrong willfully. I knew the standard. And like David, I did what was wrong. And so often Christians evade the presence of God. They think, I, I can't go to him. I need to string together some good days before I could enter his presence. David, David says, don't wait for those good days. Come to him. The time when those waters are rushing towards you, you'll be delivered. You can be forgiven. Go to God in the time when he can be found. Your baptism today is the perfect occasion for new resolutions. So I encourage you, commit yourself to this. I will go to God every day while he may be found and confess my sins to him and experience free forgiveness through Christ. And when I say to Lisa, to Kathy, and to Alexis, and to Marcus, and to Matthew, I say to each one of you who are in Christ, go to God daily. Acknowledge your sin to him and experience his grace and forgiveness. This is so foundational to the Christian life. Learning to preach the gospel to yourself. Knowing I don't have to hide from God. Through what Christ has done on the cross and through him bearing God's wrath and bearing my sins, there's now ready access between me and God. I don't have to hide. He knows about my sins. I'll confess them. And I'll be forgiven. Well, the second thing I want to say, the final thing I want to say, is something to people who have never known this experience, the blessing of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Like I said, Psalm 32 is not primarily about unbelievers. It's about Christians who fall into sin, believers who fall into sin. And yet this has implications for you as well. Looking out on this room, I actually don't know here in this room, uh, who exactly is not a believer? Some of you I, I haven't even met. There are some children here and young people. I actually don't know where you stand presently. I know some of you to be Christians, but there are some here. I, I actually don't know if you would profess Christ or not. Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are a sinner, just like we who are in Christ are sinners. And there exists really only one difference between you and us. Just one singular difference. And that is that we have had our sins forgiven. It's not that we're better than you. Uh, it's not that we have cleaned our act up and have now made ourselves more presentable. There's only one difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer has had his or her sins forgiven. That's the only difference. Through the Lord Jesus, we have received pardon for our sins and have been brought near to God. And if we can be forgiven, you can be forgiven. If things about your life that make you ashamed, are you aware of transgressing the law of God, the Creator? Are you aware of missing the mark of how you ought to live? Are there things in your background and in your life and even in your experience this past week that you would describe as iniquity, perversion, something twisted, something wrong? We know what that's like. And we've experienced the blessing of forgiveness. 
We know what it's like to fail. We know what it's like to do wrong. And we know what it's like to be forgiven. And I tell you today, as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. No matter what has gone behind, none of that disqualifies you from the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you today, with all that makes you ashamed, bring it to Christ. And just like Aaron would have confessed over that goat and laid those sins on that goat and driven him out of the camp, you can have your sins put upon Christ. And the penalty due your sins is exacted upon him and you can be saved. Go to him today and find forgiveness, find life, and you will know something of the blessing of being forgiven. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing of grace and for the blessing of forgiveness. That where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And that through what our Savior Christ has done, we can be made right with you. We can be cleansed of every stain of sin. Our transgressions could be blotted out of the book. Our iniquity is not recorded such that we could even come before you this morning open-faced, confessing our sins to you, experiencing fresh forgiveness and fresh faith in your presence. Lord, we pray that you would help each one of us who are your people to keep short sin accounts, to experience something of this freedom and this access to God whereby we can come to you and experience forgiveness and fellowship at your hand. Oh, Lord, and for all those here who have never experienced the forgiveness of sins and who still stand even now before you, guilty before your law, we pray, Lord, that you would press in upon them, move upon them, and save them by your grace. Hold before them, even now, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands ready and receive and to save and to forgive all those who come to him in repentance. And may you give the gift of faith. We thank you for the blessing of forgiveness. That is the theme of our song. And in eternity, we will sing it through endless days. We look forward to singing it even now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.